How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Side Show Podcast, episode 179. Early special morning edition, Zeke. Are you going to put the... Does this count, really, as a pre-record? Like, I mean, or is it just mm, an early recording? It's early. I think, I think for me, the difference is if we do it out of order. If we record, like, 180 before 179, mm. I think that would be, like, a pre-record, because we're pre-recording that one ahead of its, like, week slot. I haven't done one I of guess. those and then those in oh, a long yeah, while. A long time. Probably yeah, started like two years. Yeah, started COVID, I reckon. That's crazy. Oh, that was so convenient when that hey, when we did that. That was really lucky. <laughs> Everything but, <went> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go to the to early to mid sixties episodes. Sixty like one to yeah. sixty five to get that explanation. I, but... I seem to recall a uh, friend of the show, Stephen Clark's episode took place also on a morning. Yes, uh, Memories of Murder. That was an early one. Much But we like, were quite late on that as well. Much like so was, this yeah. one. I know. taking place at 8 o'clock in the morning. You know what I realised as well? So I think my answer to that is not, not a pre-record because we've we've recorded and posted 178 and now yeah. we're doing 179 even though it's... Usually we record like literally an hour before it goes live. Yes. Or it usually goes live within like an hour of us finishing I'm not gonna lie. recording. I feel fresh. I feel fresh. Feel fresh? Like, okay. you know, like, uh, <laughs> not had a whole day's work and then oh, come and done a podcast. I'm, this is the first part of my day. So the second yes, part of yes. when I'm actually at work, I'll be dead. But here, I'll put all my energy into this episode. Well, you know, it's funny because my, like, VR job now, which I'll go to after we finish this, the episode with Stephen was the day that I met my boss for that job. We did that in the morning. And then I raced over, did I race? Yeah, I think I raced straight over to his house where I met him. And just, now I have a job there. sounds like everything's matching up, much like the perfect crime. Unlike <laughs> the perfect crime. <laughs> that is true. I will say before we get into our uh, fun facts of the week, uh, a little fun fact about the show, because we are recording at least, I would say a few days early. Mm-hmm. I'd say that. Between now and the day this goes live, both of our girlfriends will have their birthdays. Which yes. is crazy. Oh yeah, that's that is a thing. Yeah, I, mean, I probably should. Well, I only, <laughs> I only, I'm going. <laughs> you to should be prepared. A different yeah. country, a different state. Different. Like yeah. Okay. Different state. That's but, a, that's still a big deal. Yeah, that's still a big deal. Yeah. So I guess well, are we doing a happy birthday on the show. Is, oh, that, is that what that is? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, happy, birthday happy birthday to, to uh, oh, we're you. actually singing it. Happy birthday! To <laughs> this is the least coordinated <laughs> double date birthday ever. You know, it's funny. We have great chemistry on the show, and then you've completely caught me off guard by by a woman, <laughs> much like much, much like, like the, the protagonist of this film. <laughs> <laughs> well, <I'm a> <laughs> oh my god! Well, my fun fact for double indemnity is mm. like i think that's how it's pronounced yeah, happy happy birthday film. to kirsty and lucinda yeah absolutely very exciting times which i think this is the first time ever we've both we've had both had partners while recording this podcast it's, usually it's, it's one it, or the other it's funny because if you what if you listen to the episodes it's like we've talked it's we've like a timeline of girlfriends it. yeah <laughs> that's true um oh goodness hope, hopefully this is the last that that's it that's exactly it episode it. 2000 will we'll still be with person. the same with the same you know, people it's, and it's funny not to interject or even promote another podcast but on film spotting that's quite fun because obviously oh, they've been okay. having their show for over 10 years 12 years Ooh. so they've had partners and kids and such in that time yeah wow. so it's cool to kind of 
like listen to a very early episode and then like listen to later ones and it's like yeah a weird meta narrative i i feel like we've definitely gotten like slightly more mature since episode one (laughs) in terms of the show or real life (laughs) well both i mean but even like i feel like we swear less on the show yes I feel like I feel like it was. It started fun, and it's like it's still a fun show, but we we take our work seriously. I reckon. Mm. I think that's a that's a thing. But my fun fact for double indemnity. I know last week I let you go first. I want to go first again. I miss being first, okay. Zeke. Um, is that this film takes place in and around of July nineteen thirty eight, which is about six years before the film actually came out in nineteen forty four. And this would mean that the double indemnity clause of 100,000 USD mm. adjusted for inflation and uh, adjusted to the Aussie dollar is actually about $3 million today, Aussie. So Ooh, there you go. that is quite a lot of money these people are dealing with in this in this film. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have a fun one here. Um, and this sort of ties into our um, channel, uh, Ken Down Through the Decades um, retrospective, obviously mm. in our first year, we did Citizen Kane. That is true, we did. Uh, the Screen Guild Theatre broadcast a 30-minute radio ap- adaptation of the movie in uh, March 5th, 1945, uh, with Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck reprising their roles. I say this because, obviously, Orson Welles was first made famous through his radio broadcasting yeah. and then progressed to film. I also find it as a nice sort of contextual statement for the world of promoting films back in the day. Radio broadcast would be a way of promoting the film. Yeah. It's funny because like, when I heard like the radio ad, I think we are both in the car when we heard a Top Gun Maverick radio ad, it was like, whoa... Yeah, it was kind of weird, but back then I guess it's like it's like the main way and to even you would take it a step movies. further. Those people that couldn't afford to go to see the movie, yeah, get the thirty-minute radio play. Yeah, that's sick. That's pretty cool, actually. Yeah, I like. And that. And obviously, uh, like as I said, Orson Welles, obviously. Yeah, we've talked a lot about. Well, yes. I feel like we're going to talk about make some comparisons to both Citizen Kane and even the Third Man in today's episode. But we Lovely. shall see. Jake, have you caught anything in the last? Well, I have. I have, I have one more banger for you, Zeke. Oh, sorry. Because there's an 1100 films oh poster right behind you. So maybe not as fresh. early. I know early morning, early morning jitters. There we go. Yeah. I even where morning came from. My I'm goodness. Gonna, I'm need, gonna say we're sipping our coffees right it's now. It's on that. Yes. That, it, that. It, yeah. And I think it should be on there. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot going on in this film. Just a, it's like a classic retelling. Um, I put it up there with like Sunset Boulevard, just like classic well, Hollywood funny. stories. Director. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, and I was silly, a bit, a bit of a shame. I was aiming to get that film out the way before this recording. I didn't right. get it because I still never watched Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. So. Oh, it's it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, because it didn't win. I think we put it up for the first retrospective. I think. Yeah, I think I put it all. I think it was actually. It was. Last it, was it was one of the last two, and I think I put it up, but it lost to. Twelve Angry Men. Uh, either Twelve Angry Men or what was the other year we did, that we actually did. Now I'm blanking. I don't remember. Maybe it was Twelve Angry Men. Well, that was the first one, but I'm trying to remember what the second one we did was. It's there's too many episodes. Tell us, audience, message us. There's too many episodes, but yeah, it absolutely deserves to be on that poster. And to answer your questions, Zeke, I saw a couple of things. 
Well. Obviously, there's been a, not a lot of time since the last episode in this episode, but yeah. like I said, I held on to one. And I'll, I'll start with the one that I actually did see last night. Mm-hmm. I just I jumped on Netflix and I was like, you know what? I'm going to watch this and see if I like it in any way, shape, or form. It's called Spree. So this is the Joe Carey film. Of course, probably uh, more famous for Steve Harrington in Stranger mm-hmm. Things. And uh, I've seen this film pop up many, many times. And I was like, I don't know what this is. And it... It's a it, crazy mm-hmm. Uber driver, isn't it? Yeah, so it follows... Um, they have their own, like, um, like serving for Uber. Mm-hmm. I think it's a lot of, like, fake... I think YouTube's in there, but everything else is relatively, like, fake streaming sites and fake car share or car ride app things. Um, but, yeah, it's about um, Joe Carey, who's on a killing spree in order to amass a following on social media, and he uses it by basically yeah, driving Uber and mm-hmm. killing people during this. And... It's interesting because I immediately was comparing this film to, like, four other films. And I think we've talked about most of them on this show in the past. We talked about I Blame Society, um, which is probably the most similar this is to, in the sense of someone going on a, on a mass murdering spree, someone a bit more unsuspecting and is filming the whole thing, basically creating a found footage snuff film, which is exactly what this style is for this film. Um, I liked it better in I Blame Society because it is more about the self-expression of like a creator or an artist, while here it's a little bit more about the obsession of social media, which leans more into mainstream, the Andrew Garfield, Maya Hawke film, which I really did not like. Mm. I thought that film was woeful. But that being said, I think the themes are a little more interestingly explored in this film. Um, I kind of wanted to hate it at first. <laughs> I was like, okay, here's another mm. cheap found footage film they're using gopros mostly and it's oh it's gonna be it's gonna be joe carey and a bunch of random sort of stunt castings in the back of the car not that i really recognized anyone but it kind of felt like oh this is meant to be someone that they cast in this car who's now screaming incel and beta at at my protagonist and uh and some of the performances are really woeful from those sort of supporting um i guess you call them featured extras or supporting cast but the more the film went along I was, A, thoroughly engaged in what was happening, mm-hmm. especially after the midpoint when he's finally starting to amass the following. You're seeing, like, the, the viewership numbers start ticking up. And this is when I compare it to things like Searching and Unfriended. Okay. Searching probably would be my favorite of these four films. Mm. And Unfriended... The film. Yes, the film, um, which is a great film. I mean, that was very... That was, like, we watched it just before we started the podcast, so we never covered it properly, I don't yeah. think. Yeah. Um, there was like a late 2018 film that we both caught around the same time. but And then you can compare it to Unfriended as well, which is more of like the UI stuff of like seeing what's what's like on the computer screen. And um, I think it, I, I wish it adhered more to that because I found that when the comment section was like scrolling through the screen, I was sort of invested because I'm, I'm seeing like the, the actual live growth of his audience as he's killing people. Yeah. But then every now and then they would take it away and it's just the camera feed. And I was actually kind of losing the plot a little bit. I was actually losing that pace, um, which I thought was interesting. But I got to say by the end of the film, as much as I was like, I don't really know how I feel about it. I landed on the freestyle rating. I was like, you know what? I wouldn't not recommend this to anyone. Yeah. It's not the worst of these kinds of stories. You got, you got mainstream and unfriended, which are, um, you know, very either poorly executed or sort of gimmicky. Um, while something like searching I Blame Society, I think you're going to get a lot smarter social commentary on that. But this sits right in the middle, I feel like. Okay. So, 
spree. I liked it. I saw one other thing, but I'll, I'll throw it to you, Zik, if you've seen anything. I did. I did actually watch mm, something. Okay. Um, so okay. I actually also went to the old Netflix, um, which I don't think I've gone to... I think I've been giving Netflix a lot of love recently compared mm. to our other streaming platforms. There's like 7 million other streaming <laughs> platforms to focus on. <laughs> yeah. And it, and to be honest, it, for me personally, I, I think the last, they've, they've had a pretty weak year in terms of, like when we especially we consider where they've come from in the last three or four years. Mm, yeah. Um, Even just know, like the drop in, like the, um, the, like the shares and everything. Yeah. And, and then like, you know, like couple of years ago like they were the, they were the first streaming platform yeah. to be in the oscar contention race and, mm. and now it's sort of now it's like apple's done it <laughs> yeah and <clears throat> i think honestly yeah but that being said i mm. did watch an enjoyable documentary on netflix Ooh. that just just dropped recently uh it's called like a rock and it actually integrates with an episode we've done on the show Ooh. in on this the rocks retro- on the in rocks. this oh, okay. in this retrospective <laughs> Um, in our 2000s, almost famous. So, yep. Like a Rolling Ooh. Stone is the life and story of Ben Fong Torres. Ooh. If you remember that name from Almost Famous, it is the editor that talks to uh, William on the oh. phone who works for Rolling Stone. That's cool. And it's really, and Cameron Crowe makes a. Uh, I guess appearance. ten minute a ten minute appearance actually talking to the real life Ben Fong Torres who oh, was a sick. founding writer of the Rolling Stone, and it sort of talks about this Chinese American man obviously huge for the time when we mm. think about it, in the sixties obviously it was a renaissance of art culture race like um, there was a lot of movements going on and this Chinese American man is finds himself not only in uh, writing for Rolling Stone magazine, but being a seminal cog in ensuring its stability and right, okay. keeping alive. And to be honest, he's a very charismatic man. And the, obviously, I actually drew a couple of comparisons. I mean, there was a little bit of almost that feeling. Obviously, you know, now Ben is now an older man and sure, um, yeah. hasn't actually. Films, re- what, 22 years now? 22 what? years old? Yeah. Oh, almost famous, yeah. Well, yeah, and then but that's then set even in that, the 70s. Yep, yep, so it's been 50 years since he actually worked for Rolling Stone. <laughs> Goodness. So he's in his 70s now, and, and it's sort of one of those things that... It has that... It almost had that feeling of, like, the Dick Johnson is dead sort of oh, okay. vibe. Like, yep. um, I've got to get the director's name A little up. meta in um, that sense. Well, it, it has, like, that younger to older generation sort of conversation there. Oh, yeah. And yeah. honestly, the Cameron Crowe stuff, adds this like meta narrative to it and also because Cameron and they actually talk about the motivation for almost famous because William right, okay. was Cameron Crowe. Yeah. Um yeah. and I found that really interesting. Like and they talked about him meeting Ben and Ben was the one that actually asked him to write a five hundred piece only to find wow. out that he was sixteen. So it's a huge sort of full circle moment of them talking about this. Yeah. Going back to when it happened and then the movie being made in the middle of it all. Yeah. So is this a recent drop? Yeah. It's oh my a God. 2021 release and um, I think it's just come to Netflix. And oh, okay. I see. It's yeah. fantastic. Like, And to be honest, yeah. great exposure with um, musicians and he sort of talks about like... He, ben was the last one to have uh, a interview with John Morrison, who was the lead right. singer of The Doors before he you know, died in the 70s. Yep. And... It was just interesting, and it, and the the whole thing gets tied neatly with like he he had one of the first major interviews with Elton John, and then it finishes yeah. with El, Elton John coming back out and meeting 
Ben again like 50 years later. That's awesome. So man. It sounds like you're like super rewarded for not only knowing the history but seeing almost famous as yeah. well. Yeah. And uh, it really does have that that level to it. And obviously you understand, you know, he explores the whole idea of a, uh, you know, Chinese man immigrating, so obviously his family immigrating. Um sort of the uh cultural wars he was having within um the Chinese community in America mm. at the time and yeah. like being a part of that and also his relationship with his parents and stuff because um, he developed an intimate relationship with a white Caucasian person, which was there's that whole aspect that gets explored too and ends yeah. up marrying a white person. So it's really, there's a lot of um, layers to it. And it's honestly, it's a fairly entertaining documentary. It doesn't do any, I wouldn't say it does anything like super unique and different, but because of the content, but it doesn't need to because the right. content, because it is just, it's one of those things where, because it's biographical, it, the exploration, the interesting exploration is someone that you wouldn't even think about who mm. would have had access to all of this culture yeah. at the time. And then I think wo- weaving in the, the Cameron Crowe stuff because he's quite a charismatic man himself. And right. he's such a, he's, the best part is when he's talking to Ben, he's acting like kind of like, a, to be honest, a 50 or 40-year-old <laughs> William, but he's like still got that <laughs> that uppity eagerness and right, wide-eyedness yeah, that yeah. gets conveyed in, in Almost Famous. So it's it's hard not to be like moved by that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you and they can talk, relate to it yeah, as And well. he even talks about like how Ben used to say crazy like and <laughs> say it with that inflection. Really? It's so funny. But um, great, great documentary. Hell yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. I got to check that out. Well, the only other one I saw, and again, uh, this is a cheat, so you actually saw this uh, in the previous week, but I wanted I wanted to save it. Bank it, Zeke, for this sure. one. So I saw The Innocence, which is a 2021 film. It's playing at Luna right now. It, when I saw the trailer, well, first off, I read the logline here on this show. I was like, this sounds like, like a Nordic interpretation of Chronicle, mm-hmm. which... We're, we're big fans of Chronicle, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah Chronicle, that's a great film. I think the, the ending falls apart a little bit. But, sure, sure, um, okay. From a collective, yeah. But I, we probably both saw it at the perfect age as well, where it would have come out when we were like maybe 13, 14. Yeah, I, I watched it as a, I think, 19. I think it was 19 oh, okay, I okay. I think the last, yeah, the last five or six minutes, like the last, the last act, it sort of gets a bit... Uh, week for me right i like okay. the i do overall positive yeah yeah well the general premise sort of is similar in this film like it feels more nordic it feels colder it's the kids are younger they're more like ages like seven to twelve or like seven eight and then there is like a 12 year old in mm-hmm. there um so it sort of has this more inherent creepiness to the whole thing i think that's the best way for me to describe it because it's about these four kids who have this sort of unexplained like psychologically connected telekinesis power mm. where it's like one kid can feel the other's pain another kid can feel the uh, like speak for the other character sure so there's there's interesting little things going on there it's never quite explained it's all sort of inferred and and the story's quite quiet and visual it reminded me of lamb in that way where a lot of the stories is sort of slowly unfolding and um which is you know great stylistically and there's mm-hmm. some great visual effects where there's like this fading smoke in the background but then when when it, we actually focus pull to it it's like disappeared and um these cool things where the kids are like you know they're pushing the water but like the water's being sort of the flow of it's being pushed before the finger actually touches it mm-hmm. so it's, it's these very little subtle visual effects which really work because they're part of like a two-minute take and they sort of come in at the 90 second mark so it's mm-hmm. this 
it all feels really authentic and cool in that sense. Um, I I thought it was really cool, really well shot, um, very, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, it's it's my favorite kind of horror film in that it's not really scary, but it's just like constantly putting you off and like yeah. generally thinking about what if there were kids in our local neighborhood that had these powers and were just so. Um, unequipped to deal with them or to refrain from inflicting pain on others. And I think as much as we think about horror films as like violence and, and bloody gore and things, mm-hmm. I mean, not a lot of them are specifically about pain. And I think this film is specifically about pain. And, and again, there's a scene when the kid slips some glass into the shoes of her older sister mm-hmm. and she is nonverbal uh, autistic. So she's unable to communicate the pain that she's feeling by putting these shoes on and she's constantly stepping on glass throughout the day. Yeah. It's like, that's the kind of uncomfortability you're going to get watching this film. Um, but then it leads on to the kids inflicting pain on others. And again, one of the kids feels the pain of the other kids. And it just felt like that theme was constantly reinforced. And I thought that was really cool. Um, I don't know what it says about autism in the sense that this girl is like, you know, her powers blossom when she's with these kids. I don't know if it's a commentary on, like, you know, oh, she's with people who see her as equal, so her powers blossom. I don't know if it needs to... Mm. I don't, I didn't care. I was just more curious. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I thought it was a great film. I think a 90-minute cut wouldn't have hurt. A bit. It's two hours. Okay. And not that I was bored at any point, but it, it's slow, and it's like it has a natural build-up. It has, like, a big climax. It could have been a really tight yeah. 90 and, like, really invested your attention, but... Nevertheless, I really enjoyed The Innocence. So, go check it out at Luna today. There you go. Beautiful. Well, uh, I don't suppose you have anything to add into our career section of the show? I, I do not, but I have an alternative, Zeke. I want to... Wow! Yeah, go for it. So, I have this piece of paper on, on the desk. That, that is I've... indeed a piece of paper. <laughs> you can hear it, audience. I'll, I'll grab it. The ASMR. There you go, the piece of paper. Now, I've written on here... Uh, several quotes, mostly quotes from Walter Neff, the protagonist of the film mm-hmm. we're about to talk about. Um, specifically, the the big voiceover, very noir detective s monologues mm. that he has. And I thought we could uh, maybe pick a couple of these, go back and forth, and do our best noir detective uh, reading of these lines. Okay. It is early morning, folks, so it's yeah. a little. I'm sprinting this on Zeke, but would you like to go first? I can give. Oh, I could go. Whichever you prefer, Zach. Like, I'll go first. Okay, okay. I'll give you I'll the. Leave, I'll, geez. Give you the piece of paper. I was gonna say. You There's were, some long ones in there. You, big don't, one there. you don't have to do the big ones. <laughs> I'll, I'll. Okay, I'll go from the top. Okay, I like it. It was a hot afternoon, and I can sure remember the smell of honeysuckle all along that street. How could I have known that the murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? Maybe you have to know. <laughs> you should have known, Keys. The minute she mentioned the accident, but I didn't feel. I felt like a million. <laughs> that was fucking brilliant. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. You really committed to that. Oh, God. Now I have to up my game. Jesus Christ. That's a lot of quotes. That is a lot of... Well, I just wanted to make sure we covered okay. our basis. Okay. I, I didn't know how long we wanted to do this for. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. I'm really... Oh, God. Now I'm, now I'm embarrassed. <laughs> Shit, that was really good. Um, all right. 
I'm going to have to do my own spin on it because okay. I can't, like, do that voice exactly. Well, like the, 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 the silly Sean Connery-esque. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's really good. You have to shriek oh. through your teeth. Oh, shit, I see. I'm going to talk like this. Yes. Okay, I could actually do this. I just need to keep talking like this, otherwise I'm going to lose it. Oh. Uh, it's Okay. <laughs> Don't choke on your coffee, Zeke. It's just like the first time that I came here, isn't it? We were talking about automobile insurance. Only you were thinking about murder, and I was thinking about that anklet. Ooh. I'll do another one, because that was short. All right, and then I'll pass it back to you. All right, let's see. What's a good one? I'll do a Barton Keys quote. Okay. All right. So I'm not I'm not leaving you many short ones left, but that's okay, because I want to hear that voice one more time at least. <laughs> All right, this is a quote from Barton Keys. A claims man, Walter, is a doctor and a bloodhound and a cop and a judge and a jury and a father confessor all in one. <laughs> uh, I'll, uh, I'll do one more uh, I think the second so first, the second one is probably the shortest the the shortest one that's not with one line okay. but it's up to you so the second one yeah I think that's probably the not overly long one <laughs> that's right I'll go for the big long one to finish off oh my god here okay go. here we go so we just sat there and she started crying <laughs> softly like rain on a window and we didn't say anything Maybe she had stopped thinking about it, but I hadn't. I couldn't, because it was all tied up with something I've been thinking about for years. Since long before I ever ran into Phyllis Degerson. Because you know how it is, Keys. In this business, you can't sleep for trying to figure out all of the tricks they pull, and they you could pull on you. You're like a guy behind a roulette wheel, watching the customers to make sure they... Don't crook the house. And then one night, you get thinking how you could crook the house yourself. And do it smart. Because you've got that reel right under your hands. You know, every notch is in by heart. And you figure all you need is to plant out front a, a shield to put down the bet. And suddenly the doorbell rings and the whole setup is right there in the room with you. <laughs> I feel like I'm like half well half noir, half sh- like bloody Scooby Doo. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's slightly more noir than Scooby Doo. I'll give you that. Oh my god, that was more beautiful than I could have ever imagined. Oh my god, that is our so career could update I, could now. Could I make it in 1940s Hollywood? I can do it. Right. I can Probably do it. Considering I have to shave my beard. Cons- yeah, unfortunately. Um. That was the most disappointing thing about North by Northwest is he shaves his, like, non-beard halfway through the moon. It's like, what is there to shave, sir? It's so funny how fashion <laughs> works, right? Like, they went from no hair whatsoever to just hair fest in a decade. <laughs> it's like, Woodstock came around, everyone went, yeah! Like, yeah. hippie is being unkept. It's, it's amazing. Actually, that's true on Planet of the Apes as well, which was our 60s film. It's like, they grow the beards after time has passed, and then... Even though they were like in this apparent futuristic world where apes rule, their main priority is to shave when they can. Yeah, <laughs> it is quite fascinating. You almost make that. It almost feels like it's just Charlton Heston wanted to shave. Really? Yeah, yeah. He's like, I'm sick of the beard. Come on, guys. No I want to shoot some guns. Well, Jake, it is time for us to move into our second last. Oh, Canada through the decades retrospective for our third year. We're in the 1940s. Hmm. And yeah. as we can tell, Jake, what are we watching? <laughs> we really are in the 1940s after that. <laughs> this week of the show, Zeke, we're watching Double Indemnity. You're a smart insurance man, aren't you, Mr. Neff? 
Well, I've been at it 11 years. Doing pretty well? Oh, it's a living. You handle just automobile insurance or all kinds? All kinds. Fire, earthquake, theft, public liability, group insurance, industrial stuff, and so on, right down the line. Accident insurance? Accident insurance? Sure, Mr. Dedrickson. Wish you'd tell me what's engraved on that anklet. Just my name. As, for instance? Phyllis. Phyllis, huh? I think I like that. But you're not sure. I'd have to drive it around the block a couple of times. Mr. Neff, why don't you drop by tomorrow evening around 8.30? He'll be in then. Who? My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. A rich woman and a calculating insurance agent plot to kill her unsuspecting husband after he signs a double indemnity policy against a backdrop of a distinctly Californian settings, the partners in crime planned the perfect murder to collect the insurance, which pays double if the death was accidental. Ooh. But it was not. You're it was murder. Murder. You know this announced the title for Knives Out 2? Really? Yeah. And now I'm forgetting it. Something Onion. Let me confirm this. Because identity. I don't think you believe me right now. Uh, knives out. Oh, Glass Onion. That's it. <coughs> Glass Onion coming out later this year from Ryan Johnson. Is it the same? It's uh, the only person that's the same in that film as Daniel Craig. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's meant to have like a new cast, new tone, but he's like the consistent thing. Anyway. He's the uh, yeah, cool. We got that's very exciting. sidetracked very quickly, but that's okay. Jakey boy, <laughs> double indemnity. Mm. As you have set the tone perfectly, I did. Yeah, really <laughs> did encapsulate what 1940 cinema was all about—the noir setting. Um, yeah, which is really weird because when I first typed it into um, into binge, it actually came up with Double Whammy, which stars Steve Buscemi. Uh, so I was, I was watching that for a good thirty minutes, and I was like, "This isn't right." See, <laughs> <laughs> so it, you, you, by by every pretty much by every conce- conceivable um, trope, this mm-hmm. encapsulates sort of the nineteen forties film noir genre kind of perfectly you know you got femme fatale mm. so, uh, a corruptible protagonist yep yep lots of uh casting shadows and low and low-key lighting mm. and well it's funny because i remember i actually remember thinking like wow i'm i'm, I'm surprised they don't play with shadows more in this but i'm used to like the third man which is like that's like the king of yeah. shadow usage <laughs> a lot of shadow play <laughs> Um, um, but even like the narrative structure and like the 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 voiceover with the Max Payne esque line delivery as we just so uh, interestingly concocted then <laughs> or repeated. Um, but yeah, that's why I do think of Citizen Kane quite a bit. Is when I'm watching this, you do have the narrative structure sort of being played and toyed with, where the whole film is like basically just a giant flashback, and mm. we're starting in media res. Um, but then from a film filmography point of view or i should say a cinematography point of view there's still that era of mystery even in that opening scene absolutely i mean Um, there's a yeah 
it's what we now consider the the D A B C structure, where yes. we find ourselves <laughs> um, at the end, at the beginning, and then sort of we get that that prologue and epilogue way of of, of structuring. And um, I th- we we it's quite innovative when you think about it for yeah. the time. Yeah, um, well, Sunset Boulevard, same structure, the D A B C structure, but of course that came out later, so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I, I do, I do think it, it does help because obviously, if this plot had a sequential order of events, mm. we would probably wouldn't be as engaging or intriguing. Um, yeah, which is which is odd because you would think going into it knowing less about the ending would make you inherently more intrigued about like the events of the film. But I think you're right. I actually think you are more intrigued by the fact that you have breadcrumbs of where the story goes, where you see Walter and, and it turns out he's got like a gun wound, but he's sort of hobbling and stumbling into his office. And again, that's a great scene because it's basically just his back. Yeah. We're actually like, who's this mysterious figure for quite a lot once he's upstairs and we flip the camera around, but him recounting the story where he's like, I'm responsible for this crime and retelling this story where I feel like we're more intrigued First off, because of the delivery, which is mm. just classic. Um, but I think the fact that we're trying to fill in the blanks of the story actually makes us more intrigued by yeah. what's going to happen, specifically. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think... It, it, and it's 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 quite interesting, because it's like you've somehow made insurance compelling, which I find... <laughs> and, and insurance uh, jargon is littered through this film. Mm. It's... Uh, and probably, you know, not to put too much emphasis on spoiler, probably has home to one of my favourite scenes, or at least one of my, definitely the, my favourite oh, monologue. Okay. Um, and I, I think it's it's quite an interesting uh, film. And, I, I, you know, I, I recount back to the time, and you've got to think it's like, you know, attitudes and values of the time. It's, it's very interesting to be dealing with things like having love affairs mm. and... Um, and not in the not in the we're in love, um, love conquers all love affair. No, this is more the it's the, kind of dirty and gritty and and, yeah. and it's I mean it's an affair for starters. Yeah, and it's, it's an affair based around murder and deception and and I I think reading through the IMDb trivia, I was reinforced by what you're saying and that almost half the trivia was about how the cast and and writers and directors and a lot of them were uncomfortable with the themes and the characters. Um, which, yeah, which, you know, we're 80 years removed from this time period. We've seen anything and everything you can imagine mm-hmm. in, in film and television. But it is sort of this eerie thing of there's there's an affair and there's this lust right off the bat and you, and these characters, characters are not using great. using each other yeah. to kind of get um, what they want. They're um, not nice people. No. No, they're... they're mm-hmm. um, and it's funny because the ones... They do this really, and and a lot of and the world is not depicted. Cali, and this is a sort of, and and I'm I'm sure you can build on this point, especially sure. with what you know Billy Wilder has achieved with this and Sunset is it's painting California not in its godly angelic lights. Mm. Um, obviously, this is probably way more grounded than Sunset Boulevard is in terms of just the everyman. Yeah, I think I think visually this is leaning into it with the black and white photography and sort of the seediness of it. I think Sunset Boulevard, it feels more Lynch-esque where it's, it's nice and colourful visuals. Well, I mean, the film 
I'm pretty sure it's black and white as well. <laughs> but it feels yes. more sunny and lively, but with the seedy underbelly, like, hidden underneath the surface. Yeah. And I think this is more overtly in your face, which I like. It's really cool. Yeah, and it, but both are trying to achieve that sort of, well, California's not this great, beautiful place. Where yeah. Yeah. It's not the city of angels. It's, no. the, it's the city of every other person, basically. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And I find that really interesting. And obviously, I think the juxtapositions here too. It's like when um, he arrives at uh, oh, I've got to, D, the Diedrich household. Right, right. Um, at the start of the and film. And he's talking about the 30K, like how much mm. the 30K for like a house. Like that's crazy. Um, <laughs> but, Nowadays, yeah. <laughs> um, which to be fair, even in my brain, I was like, oh, that's still a lot of money for that time. But it's still like baffling to you know when he goes to the Diedrich household for the first time and how like glamorous it is and mm. then within the first conversation the concept of murder is introduced it's quite a an immediate deviation and it is it's like yeah. her coming even when he's at the bottom of the stairwell and she comes out and she's just in a in a towel mm. and it's it really is that level of of exploitiveism right there straight off the bat and it's yeah it's way less subtle than something like Blade Runner's first, obviously, you know, 50, 40 years mm. later, but obviously yeah. neo-noir depiction, but it's like the way that they present the femme fatale and that she's in like a power imposing move. Mm. She's yeah. She's got that level of seduction to her, but it's way more subtle. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in, in certain versions, you don't have the Deckard voiceover. <laughs> yes. Taking over that. But um, yeah. And, and I think what's so cool about this one, Ridley as well. Scott gets a little hmm? jabs on this show. Ridley Scott. I know every now and then you got to do it. You got to do it. We did. We did the other. Uh, we did the other Scott <laughs> just a few weeks ago with with um with Top Gun. But yeah, no, I I I thought the same thing of just how immediate it was that was seen. I, I think CV is a really good word for it. But just even like Walter's well, yeah. crippling sort of moral compass is almost immediately like sworn by this woman and, and knows that she's married. The reason but he's he enables there is because it. of her husband. He enables it 100%. Yeah. And yeah. So he's, he immediately um, disregards the husband's existence. He's like, oh, well, he's not here. So there's that level of... He has that, obviously, that lack of morality there. And, mm. and I think that it's interesting because they frame the job, this, mm. this insurance policy job. And originally they they do see this thing where it's like, oh, well, Neff's just a... Salem, and he's just selling the insurance. He's not trying to con you or anything. He's just trying to do his best. No, he's, he's upright. And even when, when he first finds out about the, the con or the yeah. plan, or the scheme, I should say, he rejects it. And it kind of points out the double-sorted nature of of an insurance job like that, where you, your job is to sell insurance to people, but you also need to you know, skeeve out the, the fakers and the thieves and True. the liars. But I, I would then say that they position you, at least in that first act, mm. they present keys as this antagonistic figure because he's mm. the one who goes oh he'll catch it yeah he'll catch it and he's the one that we're supposed to get it by so he is technically the film's antagonist which is quite interesting but yeah obviously this is that classic noir uh trope of the antagonist is probably more charismatic and actually more righteous than our protagonist yeah and, yeah um in the which keys is honestly just trying to do the most rightest moralistic thing and is a workaholic and seeks to off constantly talks about the little man inside him that's <laughs> telling him something's wrong but it, the reality is is that not just him talking about his gut instinct and, yeah. and how 
he when he feels something's morally not right he's trying to correct that behavior that's that righteousness at its at its fullest yeah yeah whereas the only reason Neff turns down Barbara's original proposal is because he doesn't think he can beat the house mm, right well that that's it and and one of the big things I've thought about when watching this film is sort of the motivation between those two characters specifically because you got we'll start with Phyllis who's clearly very cunning mm-hmm. and and the fact of the matter is like she had this scheme you know concocted in her head before Walter walks through that door really anyone whoever well, walks through that door later in the, in the, in the film oh, it's, right, right, right. A, it's not the first time something like this has happened that is true but yeah it's like whichever insurance man walked through that door it was part of that plan and you know the love affair that they have it's like well you think about the motivation of Phyllis in particular in terms of how is she going to manipulate Walter to do to do her bidding, essentially. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. And on the other end, you got Walter, who, like you said, I think at first doesn't isn't quite sure if he's capable of doing this. And that that's the question. Is like, is it his love for Phyllis? Is it the fact that you know the allure of whether he can actually get away with it? Um, is it the money? But you know, it, it's it's there's a lot of interesting motivations going on here. But mm. like you said, I think ultimately he's just sort of a morally corrupt person or easily corruptible person. I think it's probably the best way to put it. And with keys, it's like, like you said, he's probably the more, the most moralistic of the sort of that trio, if you will. Yeah. But if you want to break it down to the actual job, what's he trying to do? He's trying to avoid giving this person money and <laughs> but he's trying to do his job he's so, doing his job so inherently is is a debt collector a bad person well that that's it i mean that's where the the interesting dynamic comes from where it's like well we associate you know that person in the insurance role of oh well he's just doing anything he can to not give a person their money but in every case we've seen in this film they are schemers and thieves and, and fakers that he's calling out yeah and he's like Maybe I actually think the film would be detracted if we saw a scene where Keys gave it to some, like gave right. money to someone that had perfect intentions. Yeah, because we have to go off the precipice that that's just the type of person. Like we're only seeing, we honestly we only see two scenes mm. in which, uh, well, we see him interact with a sort of a random Joe character to kind of prove, oh, he's not giving money. Like it's trying, but it's a misdirect yeah. because the reality is, like you said, the whole point of the film is them trying to <laughs> prove keys are, and yep. it's at first like you know it's that scene when they're talking to, I'm not 100 percent sure the, the the head of the company, right? And yeah, yeah. He's trying to be all smart, and keys obviously pulls that fantastic monologue <laughs> out of like it wasn't suicide, like. It's and he goes and rattles off a ridiculous amount of stuff. It is one of the yeah. most impressive monologues to remember. <laughs> um, right, and he's got the numbers in his head. See, and it's and the way that that Wilder like chooses to slowly encroach the camera in mm. and allow just the actor to do all this work, and he's like, swe- and you can see him sweating, and he like puts himself up. Yeah, and yeah. It's just an absolute slam dunk, and then it follows up with that Neff. Uh, you know, obviously. Uh, narration where he's like, "Oh, you were basically on our side. Yeah. We were so worried about you." And but then it's like, now all the pieces crumble from the that man. point. Yep, the little back. man kicks in, and I think maybe he's actually just pregnant. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> that's a twist and a half. But I would say it's definitely like you're trying to obviously because the story is positioned from Neff's perspective. Um, yeah. Well, at the at the end of the day, you're right. It's like they have to set up the antagonist. The antagonist is the the he he has eyes and ears everywhere in the sense that he's always going to pick up any little you know clue left behind. But I think from a moralistic standpoint, if you want to step back further, it's like well, these they killed a man. They yeah. they they set up this plot and and framed a man who you you know fell off a train allegedly and they they've killed her husband. And it's like, well. No, they shouldn't get the money. They shouldn't be rewarded for doing that. So on yeah, that fundamental level, yeah, Keys is the hero of the story. <laughs> yeah, but that's that sort of... Obviously, and this is where the words protagonist and antagonist always yep. come in. Yep. It's not good guy, bad guy. It's person that we're following yep. obstacle. Yeah, exactly. Um, or opposing force. And so... And that's why this film just slots right into that 40s noir trope um it is interesting having like you know coming back to the setting or something like that to have massive portions of the film set in the daytime and Mm. in obviously california which is obviously this bright place sunny california there's there's no rain throughout its whole duration um i think you know it's it is it's quite interesting because it's Mm. it's sort of like I said, it's putting that juxtaposition of this gritty noir in this this sunny, meant to be like angelic place. So yeah, yeah, it's quite interesting. I I have to say mm. the the setup for the plot is quite uh, intriguing. That obviously um, having them like put together the, the the caper and then execute the caper, and that's mm. sort of the end of the first act. And um, yeah, and yeah. Then obviously, like leading to that, I was numb and I I was like didn't know how to react and it is really interesting when that day after you do get a little anxious for some reason you're like oh well are they going to get away with this or like <laughs> them all like the case being a close and shut case and then it's just that little prompt that they get from the guy from the head of the company that yep. sets keys on to have a look again. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's sort of the two halves of this story, and it's still the same goal is yes. to you know get this insurance claim for murdering a man. It's like the first half is the murder or the setup to the murder, and then that, and then the second half, I guess, after the midpoint, I guess you would go. I don't know exactly where in the length that it takes place, mm-hmm. um, but it, it it definitely feels like all right. The shift now is to to keep the lie alive, so to speak, um, as it slowly crumbles. Yeah, and yeah, you got, I think it was Lola, the 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 daughter. Who's sort of he's got, she's got her suspicions. She talks about how I think it was um, her real Phyllis's mother, um, mother was it? Oh no, it's oh, uh, Lola's, Lola's biological mother. mother. Right, gotcha. Yep, yep. And how you know she found her almost like practicing in the mirror for her morning stage and <laughs> sloppy work, amateur hour. I know. Close the door, Phyllis. <laughs> I think one of the things I like the most that really just extra adds to that grit factor is it becomes especially as. Obviously, Walter starts to develop this this kinship with Lola, um, who, who is yeah. basically just this. She is the representation of just pure innocence. Mm. You know, she's surrounded by like she was seeing this boy that was uh, a bit of a you know a dropkick and yeah. didn't really care for her father, but didn't obviously didn't want like her him to suffer more. Hates Phyllis. Like mm. she's just in a really kind of a, a tough space yeah. and 
um, I think that it's interesting because she is the one that suffers the biggest amount of loss. She loses her mother to, to mm. obviously actions by Phyllis, as we discover. And, yeah. and obviously, you know, because of Walter, he, she loses both parents. So she's an interesting representation of that, like, uh, pure innocence, naivete, mm. but innocence. Sure. Um, well, there's no naivete, you know, she's on, she's really onto the case. Yeah. But yeah. And I, and I thought it was interesting, her relationship with Walter and it's like, it slowly started to develop and he's in it simply to sort of keep an eye on her and make sure yeah. she doesn't spout anything to anyone else. And well, that's, we hit that midpoint when keys comes into Walter's apartment and goes, mm. Oh, there, I think there's something wrong here. There's something not quite right. Yeah. And then it becomes, the second half of the film becomes self-preservation to the yep. mortal extremity. And yep. it's for only, they're both only in it for each, like themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that, that pure couple, uh, love conquers all, gets immediately flipped on its head and goes, nope, it's just about self-preservation. And, yeah, that's it. Well, it's it. like, I mean, that's a big theme of the film is the fact that these two are now in this scenario together and it's like, they kind of have to ride or die together. And I really liked how that was sort of played off and like you said it's self-preservation so at that point it's like really all gloves are off even though they're sort of still together on paper mm. it obviously ends in a more spectacular spectacular way so I, I, and I have to I have to go to the ending because yeah. that's sort of where there's 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 one there's only really one scene I'm very it's very awkward and it doesn't make a lot of sense you probably know maybe what scene I'm talking oh, about maybe. um well, it, Are you talking about the, uh, sort of the climate or Phyllis's death? Is that um, what you're referring to? Just after Phyllis's death, um, when uh, I'm just going to get his name. Up. Oh, when the Zichetti. guys right walking. Um, yeah, building. he walks to the door and like Walter's in the bushes and is like, "Hey, come over here!" And they're just <laughs> like, "Do you not do this? Like, uh, block this a little." It felt a little weird that he was hiding in the bushes. It felt very forties, even just like the way he like just walks. To him. this like flat bush that's obviously like on a stage. Yeah. That he just kinda like stands in front of a bush. He's not like And then Art convinces <laughs> him gives him a dime to go make a phone call to have like to say, like, obviously because Lola likes this horrible man who right. you've only had negative interactions with, really. And and you just sort of like Yeah, it was a little clunky that scene. I, I just sure. don't really I understand it was the whole point it was trying to get Zaketi away from the body, but it was sort yeah. of like I like to my knowledge. I didn't think he was coming over. I must have. Maybe I missed. There was a piece of dialogue. I think he's like basically walking through the door. He's definitely going inside that building. Yeah, he has the intention but... to go visit um, Phyllis. Right. Yeah. But it's sort of like one of those things, or it just was a little clunky and almost didn't need to be in there because up until that point, we knew Zaketi was getting set up for the murder of, um, right of Mister Diedrichson, and it's it is quite interesting. I didn't understand that scene. Apart from, I think Phyllis and Zaketi were having some mm. sort of, also another additional affair. Just, <laughs> that's because really... that's another thing Lola reveals is like they're they're together every night, sort of thing. Yeah. So and yeah. um, that was sort of probably the reason that that was happening. But it, mm. but it is one of those things that it's and obviously because Phyllis is basically just leading all these men on, so she can eventually become this matriarchal figure with with a fortune yeah. behind her. Is is the plan? Like it's. Oh, like, you know, she says she'd get Zaketi to kill Lola and, like, just this line <laughs> of no accountability for her. Um, and, yeah, it, it is quite intriguing because yeah. um, 
but it was just a little bit of a clunky scene. But prior to that, that that their final confrontation is a is a quite a powerful and strong se- sequence of events. Yeah. But I have yeah. to throw this to you. Throw after, it, music. After Phyllis shoots Walter, mm. she then goes, "Oh, I didn't love you till this point." Mm. Um, as Walter's yeah. slowly approaching her to take the gun away, and then eventually shoot Phyllis. How very French of her. <laughs> but I think that that I personally think that's once again that's a final act of self-preservation, sure, yeah, um, and survival. Because it's after the first gunshot, when well, before he she turns dies. around because he misses, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So is it is it her saying that to I have think, one last ditch attempt of, of uh, self-preservation? Yeah. I mean, if there's anything we know about Phyllis, is that she's cunning and she she is willing to do and say what she needs to in order, yeah for self-preservation to survive and to get what she wants so it wasn't so sincere that, I mean it's so tricky you know it's so it's what, how much do we believe of her if ever you know what I mean It. I can't tell if she was ever sincere yeah because it could have all been play acting it could have she could have been completely faking the love um, that she has for Walter I think yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm leaning towards being just sceptical towards her the entire time. I mean, she's a great character. Yeah. I mean, she's a great character. Um, but I would never believe her in real life. <laughs> I would never want to... I would never... Well, I, would, I wouldn't want to meet any of these characters because Walter's so easily corruptible and Keys would probably find out about a, a speeding fine I got six years ago and kick my ass. So. <laughs> Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, so I think... And what's funny, because I actually wrote down here that even though this totally ad- abides by so many of the, the tropes and themes of a classic noir tale, um, there's a lot of iconography they've actually sort of swapped and done twists on. So I was like, you, I would usually think of police investigators in my noir story, but they've been replaced by insurance investigators. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't recall... Oh, you know what? I mean, obviously you have... I mean the guns and the and the smoking that comes at the very end, um, with the final scene with Phyllis. But prior to that, I don't think there's any real on-screen violence. Her husband's death is all off-screen. We focus on her face as she has a like conniving smile, if you will. Um, I think that is a product of the time, though, because if I recall yeah, correctly, that's that's a big part of like things like the the Hitchcockian movement, mm. where obviously with stuff like Psycho and stuff and seeing more on-screen violence. Sure, um, yeah. We're a little removed from when we start seeing those I stuff. I mean, even in, you know, this is in 44, and if you go to 49 with the third man, mm. um, even Harry's death at the end of that um, is a shot, disjointed shot, right. to, yeah. shot to reaction, um, which this has a similar thing where it's, like obviously concealing any sort of gunshots really <laughs> yeah yeah but even even like prior to that like the guns they aren't represented by guns i mean they're they're crutches almost i mean that that's kind of what you would put in place of the gun in terms of like mm. how you're inflicting well we don't see a firearm until like the last 15 yeah. minutes of the film exactly yeah that's why i think i wrote the note before that scene but i was like they're really replacing police detectives with insurance detectives and they're replacing guns with crutches 
But uh, that does make as much sense when with the last couple of scenes. Yeah, only someone wasn't in that last train cart, right? Was... <laughs> Should have just cut that scene right off. But um, speaking of, of cut that scene right off, the original ending, so of course the real like ending ending, mm-hmm. when we get back to him making his confession and he... I love it. It's like, you're never going to make it past that door and he just dies at the door. <laughs> yeah. Or the elevator. Well, he passes out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But apparently there was an original ending that they shot and I think they actually test screened it and I guess people didn't like it is Walter being caught by the police and executed via gas chamber. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Why? I, I don't know. And I think they made the decision very rightfully so to have him die in his office, which felt a bit more, um, I guess, uh, full circle for him to yeah, die in his yeah, office. Like, yeah, well, like the last shot is obviously him. He's kind of passing out the doorway. Keys lights his cigarette and the... Yeah. The police and the ambulance are on their way to fix him up and yeah. obviously take him on his way. And yeah, he will, as he says, he, he'll go to San Quentin. You know, he's going, <laughs> he's going to um, the start of a Johnny Cash song. Um, but <laughs> it's no, it obviously. I think that's really good the way that they finish it. I think the relationship between Neff and Keys is very important. Yeah, um, Keys sees Neff's potential as sort of a. a, a successor to him or a a protege mm-hmm. in, in this sort of office man finding yeah he tries to offer him the uh, assistant job yeah exactly yeah. and um there's definitely a level of mutual respect and a kinship and a, maybe a potentially the, the grounds for a friendship yeah um neff definitely respects keys um obviously in his profession and i think there's definitely that professional respect there which is why their interaction you know obviously it's like Walter still has the gun. Like, <laughs> why doesn't he? But the thing is, it's not about... He had no malicious intent towards Keys. Yeah, no. He was he was simply an obstacle to overcome in which he couldn't do. Yeah, and, that's it. Um, he knows his, his fate is certain, and that's why he chooses rather than to... That scene has no tension in it it's more it's actually a tension release scene it's a, right we well, just spent a, a good like hour and a half confessing to his crimes yeah so it's like what 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 point is killing keys or running away gonna do at this point it's the reconciliation and the acceptance there yeah, yeah. so um yeah. i love i like the in in frame last shot of the lighting of the cigarette yeah and, that's and nice a bloodied cigarette too <laughs> which looks really cool but yeah yeah really beautiful cool, cool. all right well zeke I'll ask you what your highlight scene was. Uh, yeah. It's that monologue from Keys. Yeah, uh, fair enough. <laughs> it's it, well, it's a good scene because it, it, it's, it, it has that real... That is a real tension-based scene where they're, yep. they're trying to slowly... And, you know, they've got the guy on the train in the office with them who's like... Uh, uh, not Jackson, but the other guy, the other... Wit- or was that Jackson, the witness? The witness, yeah. yeah. Who's like, sort of like he's... They're both like avoiding eye contact and he's... <laughs> I've that, seen that, you somewhere before. There's that little bit, and then there's yeah. just the... I, what I like is it's that class... Like, obviously, it's a low-key... It's a, sort of a classism uh, side commentary to... Yeah, uh, a little bit. There's definitely, like, a lower-class feeling towards the witness um, in this scenario. And the way Keyes sort of completely dismisses people... His superiors, because it's not for him like i said it's not about that that sort of scene actually in its own rights of basically proves it's not about the money mm. he's not taking it's actually is what about is moralistically right because yeah. because of this double identity clause 
the insurance company is going to have to pay double. Yeah. And they're doing anything. They're willing to shirk moralistic things and draw a grandstand conclusion. Yeah. Oh, wait, well, he killed himself. He clearly jumped off the, the train and to kill himself. And he's yeah. the one to step in and go, that is not correct and that's not the right thing to do, which shows yeah. that he really is moralistically... He's the only character that's not corrupted yeah. in the whole film. His and instinct isn't to lie and, 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 you know, skirt out of this obligation isn't to give the So we almost don't need that scene of him giving the money because we're seeing it firsthand. <laughs> He's like, no, you've got to pay up because we can't figure out what's wrong with this. Right, And then right. that sort of sets the chain of events off. So it's, it is interesting because it's, it, it really show it really show and it's a fantastic monologue, Mm-mm. like, delivered. Like, it's great. I've got to, I've got to get the, uh, the actor's name. Yeah, for sure. Um, what about you, Jake? Yeah, so for me, it probably has to be, and I already talked a little bit about it, but the actual, the whole scheme itself, everything from Walter putting little paper pieces on his phone to make sure he can tell if anyone's called. Very Sting-esque. I know, I know. Very, very clever. Um, all the way to, you know, them murdering the husband in the car and then the whole scheme on the train where he's sort of impersonating the husband with the crutches and and I like that you kind of see all the the pieces that could lead to their downfall of like you know Jackson in the back cart mm. trying to have a conversation with him the car that won't start when they finally you know dispose of the body all of those steps which obviously like we said leads to even though they think the plan is pretty ironclad initially after mm. it's done but there's just that guilt that's uh, they're ridden with guilt afterwards which I actually compared the whole sequence to Better Call Saul in terms of the way those characters go about scheming where you have Jimmy and Kim obviously taking the role of, of Walter and Phyllis in the scenario and you even got Chuck who is the keys role who just like he just knows it he just knows exactly how it all played out the true antagonist of the story so I thought I really love that whole like sequence yeah. maybe a little bit of a cheat but nevertheless it's a great scene no worries well double double Indemnity. It's mm. currently out on binge. It is on binge. Yeah, very nice. Uh, Do binge typically have like older films? Yeah, a couple. Uh, Edward G. Robinson. Oh, good stuff. Barton very Kings. good. Jake, what is mm. new to cinemas and streaming platforms in the next week? Whew, this is a big week, Zeke. Coming to Netflix, you have The Man of Toronto, which sees the world's deadliest assassin and New York's biggest screw up are mistaken for each other in an Airbnb rental. Very fun. What a what a wacky scenario! Very wacky. <laughs> you also got the third season of the Umbrella Academy, and Man vs. Bee, a series in which Rowan Atkinson fights a bee. It's a that's a whole series, like several episodes at least. Totally not Mr. Bean esque. <laughs> I mean, hey, I enjoy a good Rowan Atkinson slapstick yeah. thing. There are there are some good Johnny English films out there. Yeah. I I the first one. To that the first one's great. Coming to Stan, you got Twelve Strong. 21 Bridges, Triangle, I'm starting to see a bit of a pattern here, <laughs> and Hellboy. No idea which one. So uh, good luck with that. It's like Charles Play last week. It's like, yeah. no idea which one's which. Uh, coming to Disney Plus, this is a big drop for Disney Plus this week. You've got Fire Island, which is a group of friends embark on a week long vacation to Fire Island. I- My goodness, Fire Island. I should just say Fire Island at this point, which is a famous gay village off the south shore of Long Island. You got Plan B, not Brad Pitt's production company, but a story about a straight-laced student after a regrettable sexual encounter, and a best friend have 24 hours to track down the Plan B pill in South Dakota. Sounds a little never-really-sometimes-always-esque, I reckon. 
I feel like that has a bit more of a funny undertone to it, though, doesn't it? Oh, potentially. I honestly can't really tell. I guess regrettable sexual encounters, (laughs) that's a way to phrase it. So maybe that's like the comedic aspect. I feel like that would be the comedic aspect. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I, I'll give you that. I could be completely wrong, but it, is, it would be interesting how you frame a... That would be a good conversation, how you frame the drama yeah. version of that plot line. This is the, the comedic comedy version, version, yeah. No, I, that would be interesting. I, I would check for you if that's a comedic version or not. You also have a filmed version of the off-Broadway stage production of Trevor the Musical, which sees a charming 13-year-old boy on a turbulent journey of self-discovery. And you've also got Rise, which is the biographical sports drama focused on the Anticopo... Entity Copo Brothers, my goodness. Um, oh, and Doctor Strange, Doctor Strange, Jesus Christ. Yeah, no, it is. I was thinking of Doctor Strange Love. Mm. But we're not making love to Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. That is also coming to Disney Plus this week. Oh, cool. So uh, I might finally watch that film. <laughs> it's crazy. It's only a month, isn't it? That was a, a very quick drop. I, I mean, it did well. I'm pretty sure it did well. I don't think it was received as well as, like, Spider-Man, for example. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That was very quick. Um, Coming to Binge, which, of course, we just watched the film of the week on. you got Firecatcher, Dear Evan Hansen, Angel Has Fallen, and Last Night in Soho. There you go. Hey, very exciting. And finally, coming to cinemas, we have Elvis, which is Austin Butler as the iconic musician during his rise to fame in the 1950s. Have you seen the trailer for this? I have. Yeah. The Tom Hanks. Yeah. What are you, what are you thinking? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's toughy, isn't it? It's um, it's a music biopic. It's I get I yeah. I'm very skeptical because not all of them can hit the the walk the line level mm. of more traditionalistic but still entertaining. Yeah, and then you've got the stylistic stuff that like what Dexter Fletcher did with Rocket Man, and I probably want to see more of that, less of right the traditional stuff because. The traditional stuff, you have to buy into the artist, I think, a little bit more. Mm. Um, yeah, no. I'd, look, I'd probably go see it. I think it's tough because yeah. Elvis is a very tricky artist because there's, you know, there's obviously, and in, in, in Like a Rolling Stone, it's like, mm. um, they talk about, obviously, one of Ben Fong Torres's uh, interviewees was, uh, uh, oh, God, I'm getting his, how am I blanking on his name? Oh, he's Zeke. A, he's a... Oh, Zeke. <laughs> Ray Charles. There it is. Hey, well done. Um, and he talks about how Elvis sort of took a lot of the, uh, like, his moves and stuff from the African-American... Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, community. And Tina... Oh, that would be interesting if they explore that, actually. Yeah, and obviously Tina Turner... Uh, and she had a really good uh, interview in the same thing, talking about how Mick Jagger... She helped Mick Jagger with the way he dances. Right. So it's that... Sort of, and obviously that's a big part of, El- and Elvis was, like, pushed to the moon, mm. and yeah, did his whole sort of sound is sort of taken from African American artists that were ten years prior. It will be interesting if they touch on it, or they will might not even. Uh, yeah, Elvis is the one that's like famous for having done lots of movies because the 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 agent or the manager couldn't like leave the country, so he wouldn't tour because of that. I think there's a whole thing there. I'm not. I'm not even sure if that is Elvis, but there's... we'll find out if we watch it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly mm. right. You also have Minions: The Rise of Gru, which is, I guess, a sequel to Minions, but a prequel to Despicable Me. That the franchise. It's getting worse in the MCU. I can't tell what's going on. Uh, but it sees a 12-year-old Gru attempt to join a team of supervillains, only to become their mortal enemy. 
That's clever. Little, cool. uh, little flipperoo, I guess. Uh, Lost Illusions is a French drama that sees a young lower class poet leave his family's painting house for Paris, only to learn the dark side of the arts business. Dun dun dun. Mm. Mm. Voldemort. <laughs> he said the dark arts. <laughs> oh, that is true. The dark side of the arts. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. It's the dark mark. That's the last shot of the film. It's a, it's a prequel to Fantastic Beast. <laughs> God. Oh, God. You also got Nude Tuesday, which is an Australian-New Zealand film that sees a suburban couple on their last legs attempt to save their marriage by going to a new retreat. And their path to reconnection is riddled with hilarity and humiliation. Nude retreat, is it? I think, well, the film's called Nude Tuesday, but it, it, they go to a nude retreat. Okay. Oh, I think there's part. I saw the trailer when I saw. So is this just a? Is there going to be a lot of nudity? Is that? That's... I think it's very like ch- ton in cheek, like the 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 what's it called? The Naked Wanderer. Yeah. It's just very. I doubt you're going to see. What's with Australians and wanting to go all natural? It's because Australians are so sexy, Zeke. You <laughs> wanted to see them naked all the time. G- yummy, yummy, yummy. George Michael Freedom Uncut is a documentary that chronicles the life of the Grammy-winning artist. And finally, there's an advanced screening at Luna Leaderville this Sunday, the 26th of June, of Sundown. The film sees a wealthy man and his family's vacation interrupted by the news of a death in the family. And while everyone is ordered to return home, he pretends to lose his passport. Ooh, what is he up to? Spicy. Double indemnity. Spicy. Well, we are not watching any of those next week on the show. We're no. actually doing our last mm. countdown through the decades retrospectives. Nineteen thirties time for twenty twenty two. Uh and we are also doing a director's corner. Jake. That is true. We had two films and two directors going up this week. Who won and what are we watching? Yeah, I will say in terms of directors, I'm surprised because the alternative was Modern Times, Charlie Chaplin, which we'll have to do at some point. Um, but in terms of the actual films that we selected, I think it makes a little more sense. So winning the the poll 14-7, to 7, so it was a double whammy there, we have Victor Fleming's Gone with the Wind. <laughs> woman and a roguish man carry on the turbulent love affair in the American South during the Civil War and Reconstruction. Uh, look, another another manipulative woman, Zeke, in this story. <laughs> it's the only way they knew how to write back in the 30s. I know, back in the, <laughs> in the 30s and the 40s and maybe even the 50s a little bit. Men don't do anything wrong. It's all the women. <laughs> it's all, blame all the women. Oh, Dello this... was making films back then. <laughs> This was our. Uh, this is our thirty-six directors' corner. So uh, we've done Jeez. a lot of these directors now. Wow. It's hectic. I know, crazy. But um, no, like you said, it is a conclusion to our third, um, our third round of uh, countdown for the decades third challenge. Annual. Third annual. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. So yeah, that's a real tradition right there. It's becoming a tradition. We've had three, three golden chalk tops now. 
Uh, yeah, and free countdown for the decades is now. Yeah. But then eventually they're going to be out skewed again because we're going to have four golden choc tops, four stale popcorn awards, and only three countdown for the decades. We're going to get like a shield in here that like engraves the winners <laughs> into our. They're actually really cheap shields. Yeah, uh, we should do something like that. We've been. I'm sure there are cheap trophies out there. Yeah, I'm sure we can do something for Send fun. Send them to like. Send them to John Carney, <laughs> Shannon Murphy, Florian Zeller. I wouldn't okay. send the the stale popcorn award though to their respective directors. Oh, I'd send it to Lion King. <laughs> John Favreau. <laughs> Is that really your first impression on John Favreau? Um, <laughs> until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow podcast. <laughs> I was Skip over it. I'm Jake, and we'll catch you next week with Gone with the Wind.